Chapter twenty eight of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter twenty eight England under Henry the Eighth. Part the Second. The Pope was thrown into a very angry state of mind when he heard of the King's marriage and fumed exceedingly. Many of the English monks and friars, seeing that their order was in danger, did the same. Some even declaimed against the king in church before his face, and were not to be stopped until he himself roared out, Silence! The king, not much the worse for this, took it pretty quietly, and was very glad when his queen gave birth to a daughter, who was christened Elizabeth, and declared Princess of Wales as her sister Mary had already been. One of the most atrocious features of this reign was that Henry the Eighth was always trimming between the reformed religion and the unreformed one, so that the more he quarrelled with the Pope, the more of his own subjects he roasted alive for not holding the Pope's opinions. Thus an unfortunate student named John Frith, and a poor simple tailor named Andrew Hewitt, who loved him very much, and said that whatever John Frith believed he believed, were burnt in Smithfield, to show what a capital Christian the king was. But these were speedily followed by two much greater victims, Sir Thomas More and John Fisher, the Bishop of Rochester. The latter, who was a good and amiable old man, had committed no greater offence than believing in Elizabeth Barton, called the Maid of Kent, another of those ridiculous women who pretended to be inspired, and to make all sorts of heavenly revelations, though they indeed uttered nothing but evil nonsense. For this offence, as it was pretended, but really for denying the king to be the supreme head of the church, he got into trouble, and was put in prison, but even then he might have been suffered to die naturally, short work having been made of executing the Kentish maid and her principal followers, but that the Pope, to spite the king, resolved to make him a cardinal. Upon that the king made a ferocious joke to the effect that the Pope might send Fisher a red hat, which is the way they make a cardinal, but he should have no head on which to wear it and he was tried with all unfairness and injustice, and sentenced to death. He died like a noble and virtuous old man, and left a worthy name behind him. The king supposed, I dare say, that Sir Thomas More would be frightened by this example, but as he was not to be easily terrified, and thoroughly believing in the Pope, had made up his mind that the king was not the rightful head of the church. He positively refused to say that he was." For this crime he too was tried and sentenced, after having been in prison a whole year. When he was doomed to death, and came away from his trial with the edge of the executioner's axe turned towards him, as was always done in those times when a state prisoner came to that hopeless pass, he bore it quite serenely, and gave his blessing to his son, who pressed through the crowd in Westminster Hall, and kneeled down to receive it. But when he got to the Tower Wharf on his way back to his prison, and his favourite daughter, Margaret Roper, a very good woman, rushed through the guards again and again to kiss him and to weep upon his neck. He was overcome at last. He soon recovered, and never more showed any feeling but cheerfulness and courage. When he was going up the steps of the scaffold to his death, he said jokingly to the lieutenant of the tower, observing that they were weak and shook beneath his tread, I pray you, Master Lieutenant, see me safe up, and for my coming down— I can shift for myself. Also he said to the executioner, after he had laid his head upon the block, Let me put my beard out of the way, for that, at least, has never committed any treason. Then his head was struck off at a blow. 
These two executions were worthy of King Henry the Eighth. Sir Thomas More was one of the most virtuous men in his dominions, and the bishop was one of his oldest and truest friends. But to be a friend of that fellow was almost as dangerous as to be his wife. When the news of these two murders got to Rome, the Pope raged against the murderer more than ever. Pope raged since the world began, and prepared a bull, ordering his subjects to take arms against him and dethrone him. The king took all possible precautions to keep that document out of his dominions, and set to work in return to suppress a great number of the English monasteries and abbeys. This destruction was begun by a body of commissioners, of whom Cromwell, whom the king had taken into great favor, was the head, and was carried on through some few years to its entire completion. There is no doubt that many of these religious establishments were religious in nothing but in name, and were crammed with lazy, indolent, and sensual monks. There is no doubt that they imposed upon the people in every possible way, that they had images moved by wires, which they pretended were miraculously moved by heaven, that they had among them a whole ton measure full of teeth, all purporting to have come out of the head of one saint, who must indeed have been a very extraordinary person with that enormous allowance of grinders, that they had bits of coal which they said had fried St. Lawrence, and bits of toenails which they said belonged to other famous saints, pen-knives, and boots, and girdles, which they said belonged to others, and that all these bits of rubbish were called relics, and adored by the ignorant people. But on the other hand there is no doubt either that the king's officers and men punished the good monks with the bad, did great injustice, demolished many beautiful things and many valuable libraries, destroyed numbers of paintings, stained-glass windows, fine pavements and carvings, and that the whole court were ravenously greedy and rapacious for the division of this great spoil among them. The king seems to have grown almost mad in the ardor of this pursuit, for he declared Thomas a Becket a traitor, though he had been dead so many years, and had his body dug up out of his grave. He must have been as miraculous as the monks pretended, if they had told the truth, for he was found with one head on his shoulders, and they had shown another as his undoubted and genuine head ever since his death. It had brought them vast sums of money, too. The gold and jewels on his shrine filled two great chests, and eight men tottered as they carried them away. How rich the monasteries were you may infer from the fact that, when they were all suppressed, one hundred and thirty thousand pounds a year, in those days an immense sum, came to the crown." These things were not done without causing great discontent among the people. The monks had been good landlords, and hospitable entertainers of all travellers, and had been accustomed to give away a great deal of corn, and fruit, and meat, and other things. In those days it was difficult to change goods into money, in consequence of the roads being very few and very bad, and the carts and wagons of the worst description, and they must either have given away some of the good things they possessed in enormous quantities, or have suffered them to spoil and moulder. So many of the people missed what it was more agreeable to get idly than to work for, and the monks who were driven out of their homes, and wandered about, encouraged their discontent, and there were, consequently, great risings in Lincolnshire and Yorkshire. These were put down by terrific executions, from which the monks themselves did not escape, and the king went on grunting and growling in his own fat way like a royal pig. I have told all this story of the religious houses at one time, 
to make it plainer, and to get back to the king's domestic affairs. The unfortunate Queen Catherine was by this time dead, and the king was by this time as tired of his second queen as he had been of his first. As he had fallen in love with Anne when she was in the service of Catherine, so now he fell in love with another lady in the service of Anne. See how wicked deeds are punished, and how bitterly and self-reproachfully the queen must have thought of her own rise to the throne. The new fancy was a Lady Jane Seymour, and the king no sooner set his mind on her than he resolved to have Anne Boleyn's head. So he brought a number of charges against Anne, accusing her of dreadful crimes which she had never committed, and implicating in them her own brother and certain gentlemen in her service, among whom one Norris and Mark Smeaton, a musician, are best remembered. As the lords and counsellors were as afraid of the king and as subservient to him as the meanest peasant in England was, they brought in Anne Boleyn guilty, and the other unfortunate persons accused with her guilty too. Those gentlemen died like men, with the exception of Smeaton, who had been tempted by the king into telling lies, which he called confessions, and who had expected to be pardoned, but who, I am very glad to say, was not. There was then only the queen to dispose of. She had been surrounded in the tower with women spies, had been monstrously persecuted and foully slandered, and had received no justice. But her spirit rose with her afflictions, and, after having in vain tried to soften the king, by writing an affectionate letter to him which still exists, from her doleful prison in the tower, she resigned herself to death. She said to those about her very cheerfully that she had heard say the executioner was a good one, and that she had a little neck. She laughed and clasped it with her hands as she said that, and would soon be out of her pain. And she was soon out of her pain, poor creature, on the green inside the tower, and her body was flung into an old box and put away in the ground under the chapel. There is a story that the king sat in his palace listening very anxiously for the sound of the cannon which was to announce this new murder, and that when he heard it come booming on the air he rose up in great spirits and ordered out his dogs to go a-hunting. He was bad enough to do it, but whether he did it or not it is certain that he married Jane Seymour the very next day. I have not much pleasure in recording that she lived just long enough to give birth to a son who was christened Edward and then to die of a fever, for I cannot but think that any woman who married such a ruffian, and knew what innocent blood was on his hands, deserved the axe that would assuredly have fallen on the neck of Jane Seymour if she had lived much longer. Cranmer had done what he could to save some of the church property for purposes of religion and education, but the great families had been so hungry to get hold of it that very little could be rescued for such objects. Even Miles Coverdale, who did the people the inestimable service of translating the Bible into English, which the unreformed religion never permitted to be done, was left in poverty while the great families clutched the church lands and money. The people had been told that when the crown came into possession of these funds, it would not be necessary to tax them, but they were taxed afresh directly afterwards. It was fortunate for them, indeed, that so many nobles were so greedy for this wealth, since if it had remained with the crown there might have been no end to tyranny for hundreds of years. One of the most active writers on the church's side against the king was a member of his own family, a sort of distant cousin, Reginald Pole by name, who attacked him in the most violent manner, 
though he received a pension from him all the time, and fought for the church with his pen day and night. As he was beyond the king's reach, being in Italy, the king politely invited him over to discuss the subject, but he, knowing better than to come, and wisely staying where he was, the king's rage fell upon his brother, Lord Montague, the Marquis of Exeter, and some other gentlemen, who were tried for high treason in corresponding with him and aiding him, which they probably did, and all were executed. The Pope made Reginald Pole a cardinal, but so much against his will that it is thought he even aspired in his own mind to the vacant throne of England, and had hopes of marrying the Princess Mary. His being made a high priest, however, put an end to all that. His mother, the venerable Countess of Salisbury, who was, unfortunately for herself, within the tyrant's reach, was the last of his relatives on whom his wrath fell. When she was told to lay her grey head upon the block, she answered the executioner, No! My head never committed treason, and if you want it, you shall seize it. So she ran round and round the scaffold with the executioner striking at her, and her grey hair bedabbled with blood, and even when they held her down upon the block she moved her head about to the last, resolved to be no party to her own barbarous murder. All this the people bore, as they had borne everything else. Indeed, they bore much more, for the slow fires of Smithfield were continually burning, and people were constantly being roasted to death, still to show what a good Christian the king was. He defied the Pope and his bull, which was now issued, and had come into England, but he burned innumerable people whose only offence was that they differed from the Pope's religious opinions. There was a wretched man named Lambert, among others, who was tried for this before the king, and with whom six bishops argued one after another. When he was quite exhausted, as well he might be after six bishops, he threw himself on the king's mercy. But the king blustered out that he had no mercy for heretics. So he too fed the fire. All this the people bore, and more than all this yet. The national spirit seems to have been banished from the kingdom at this time. The very people who were executed for treason, the very wives and friends of the bluff king, spoke of him on the scaffold as a good prince, and a gentle prince, just as serfs in similar circumstances have been known to do, under the sultan and bashaws of the east, or under the fierce old tyrants of Russia, who poured boiling and freezing water on them alternately, until they died. The parliament were as bad as all the rest, and gave the king whatever he wanted, among other vile accommodations, they gave him new powers of murdering, at his will and pleasure, any one whom he might choose to call a traitor. But the worst measure they passed was an act of six articles, commonly called at the time the whip with six strings, which punished offences against the Pope's opinions without mercy, and enforced the very worst parts of the monkish religion. Cranmer would have modified it if he could, but being overborne by the Romish party had not the power." As one of the articles declared that priests should not marry, and as he was married himself, he sent his wife and children into Germany, and began to tremble at his danger, none the less because he was, and had long been, the king's friend. This whip of six strings was made under the king's own eye. It should never be forgotten of him how cruelly he supported the worst of the popish doctrines, when there was nothing to be got by opposing them. This amiable monarch now thought of taking another wife. 
he proposed to the French king to have some of the ladies of the French court exhibited before him, that he might make his royal choice. But the French king answered that he would rather not have his ladies trotted out to be shown like horses at a fair. He proposed to the dowager duchess of Milan, who replied that she might have thought of such a match if she had two heads, but that only owning one she must beg to keep it safe. At last Cromwell represented that there was a Protestant princess in Germany. Those who held the reformed religion were called Protestants, because their leaders had protested against the abuses and impositions of the unreformed church, named Anne of Cleves, who was beautiful and who would answer the purpose admirably. The king said, was she a large woman, because he must have a fat wife. Oh, yes, said Cromwell, she was very large, just the thing. On hearing this, the king sent over his famous painter, Hans Holbein, to take her portrait. Hans made her out to be so good-looking that the king was satisfied, and the marriage was arranged. But whether anybody had paid Hans to touch up the picture, or whether Hans, like one or two other painters, flattered a princess in the ordinary way of business, I cannot say. All I know is that when Anne came over and the king went to Rochester to meet her, and first saw her without her seeing him, he swore she was a great Flanders mare, and said he would never marry her. Being obliged to do it, now matters had gone so far, he would not give her the presents he had prepared, and would never notice her. He never forgave Cromwell his part in the affair. His downfall dates from that time. It was quickened by his enemies in the interest of the unreformed religion, putting in the king's way, at a state dinner, a niece of the Duke of Norfolk, Catherine Howard, a young lady of fascinating manners, though small in stature and not particularly beautiful. Falling in love with her on the spot, the king soon divorced Anne of Cleves, after making her the subject of much brutal talk, on pretense that she had been previously betrothed to someone else, which would never do for one of his dignity, and married Catherine. It is probable that on his wedding-day, of all the days in the year, he sent his faithful Cromwell to the scaffold, and had his head struck off. He further celebrated the occasion by burning at one time, and causing to be drawn into the fire on the same hurdles, some Protestant prisoners for denying the Pope's doctrines, and some Roman Catholic prisoners for denying his own supremacy. Still the people bore it, and not a gentleman in England raised his hand." But by a just retribution it soon came out that Catherine Howard, before her marriage, had been really guilty of such crimes as the king had falsely attributed to his second wife, Anne Boleyn. So, again, the dreadful acts made the king a widower, and this queen passed away as so many in that reign had passed away before her. As an appropriate pursuit under the circumstances, Henry then applied himself to superintending the composition of a religious book called A Necessary Doctrine for Any Christian Man. He must have been a little confused in his mind, I think, at this period, for he was so false to himself as to be true to some one, that some one being Cranmer, whom the Duke of Norfolk and others of his enemies tried to ruin, but to whom the king was steadfast, and to whom he one night gave his ring, charging him, when he should find himself next day accused of treason, to show it to the council board. This Cranmer did to the confusion of his enemies. I suppose the king thought he might want him a little longer. He married yet once more. Yes, strange to say, he found in England another woman who would become his wife, and she was Catherine Parr, widow of Lord Latimer. 
She leaned towards the reformed religion, and it is some comfort to know that she tormented the king considerably by arguing a variety of doctrinal points with him on all possible occasions. She had very nearly done this to her own destruction. After one of these conversations the king, in a very black mood, actually instructed Gardiner, one of his bishops who favoured the popish opinions, to draw a bill of accusation against her, which would have inevitably brought her to the scaffold where her predecessors had died, but that one of her friends picked up the paper of instructions which had been dropped in the palace, and gave her timely notice. She fell ill with terror, but managed the king so well when he came to entrap her into further statements, by saying that she had only spoken on such points to divert his mind and to get some information from his extraordinary wisdom, that he gave her a kiss and called her his sweetheart and, when the Chancellor came next day actually to take her to the tower, the King sent him about his business, and honoured him with the epithets of a beast, a knave, and a fool. So near was Catherine Parr to the block, and so narrow was her escape. There was war with Scotland in this reign, and a short, clumsy war with France for favouring Scotland, but the events at home were so dreadful, and leaving such an enduring stain on the country, that I need say no more of what happened abroad." A few more horrors, and this reign is over. There was a lady, Anne Askew, in Lincolnshire, who inclined to the Protestant opinions, and whose husband, being a fierce Catholic, turned her out of his house. She came to London, and was considered as offending against the six articles, and was taken to the tower and put upon the rack, probably because it was hoped that she might, in her agony, criminate some obnoxious persons, if falsely so much the better. She was tortured without uttering a cry, until the lieutenant of the tower would suffer his men to torture her no more, and then two priests who were present actually pulled off their robes, and turned the wheels of the rack with their own hands, so rending and twisting and breaking her that she was afterwards carried to the fire in a chair. She was burned with three others, a gentleman, a clergyman, and a tailor, and so the world went on. Either the king became afraid of the power of the Duke of Norfolk, and his son the Earl of Surrey, or they gave him some offence, but he resolved to pull them down, to follow all the rest who were gone. The son was tried first, of course for nothing, and defended himself bravely, but of course he was found guilty, and of course he was executed. Then his father was laid hold of, and left for death too. But the king himself was left for death by a greater king, and the earth was to be rid of him at last. He was now a swollen, hideous spectacle, with a great hole in his leg, and so odious to every sense that it was dreadful to approach him. When he was found to be dying, Cranmer was sent for from his palace at Croydon, and came with all speed, but found him speechless. Happily, in that hour he perished. He was in the fifty-sixth year of his age, and the thirty-eighth of his reign. Henry the Eighth has been favoured by some Protestant writers— because the Reformation was achieved in his time. But the mighty merit of it lies with other men, and not with him, and it can be rendered none the worse by this monster's crimes, and none the better by any defence of them. The plain truth is that he was a most intolerable ruffian, a disgrace to human nature, and a blot of blood and grease upon the history of England. End of chapter 28